This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. I'm going to see this factory right now and it's top secret location. They don't want anyone else to know where it's at. Welcome to Range. I'm Amy Westervelt. And I'm Julia Ritchie. So Julia, there's been a lot of talk lately about U.S. manufacturing. So what we're looking at this episode is, okay, what does that mean for the West? I think people tend to think that we don't manufacture anything in the West, but that's not true. No. Um, there are a lot of big factories here. You've got Boeing up in Washington. You've got the Tesla Gigafactory in Reno now, or just outside of Reno. Um, and you've got a lot of other factories everywhere um, of, of varying sizes. Uh, to uh, say nothing of the mining operations that yeah, occur. Yeah, Massive. Utah has a lot of copper mining and um, all of those things go into products that you use every day. Mm -hmm, exactly. So I got a chance recently to tour a factory in Oakland where they make a lot of clothing lines, many of which you've probably heard of. One um, was Beta brand. I don't know if you know that brand. but I am so fashionably unhip uh, <laughs> that you, you will probably not. I will probably not be contributing to this episode at all. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, I was, as I was like touring around, they they reminded me like several times that I was not allowed to say exactly where the factory is. Why? Um, and that sounds shady. I know it really did. Like they were, they were being really weird about it, but they were just like, well, you know, it's so hard to find an affordable, high quality factory in California that once you find it, like you kind of don't want anyone else to know where it is. Because so it becomes like intellectual property. It does. It's like so. So the um, the so, women. So long as they're not hiding abusive practices and and stuff. And I know you're going to get it to that. In a minute. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So the women that I um that. I that had kind of like gotten me in there had just started their own line but they're still pretty small so for them their concern is like well if some other big company bigger company finds out about this factory and comes in and wants them wants to drop like a giant order on them then all of a sudden they don't have the resources to do our small line <laughs> so so they're like just very nervous about anyone finding out about it how long did it take you to find this place? Well, we're doing a lot of things simultaneously, but it's kind of funny. Rhonda and I kind of laugh at each other a lot because um, manufacturing out of the country was never an option for us. Um, we didn't want to go that route. It's already done. We're kind of doing this as a real test to find out, is it really possible to cover all of these different areas, you know, whether you're thinking about labor conditions, quality, trying to keep things as close to home as possible, cost, you know, the customer, and have it be a sustainable, thriving business while considering all of those sort of stakeholders, or we're, we're calling it like our ecosystem, and trying to keep as much of the money here in our community as possible.
Richie Mirabetti and Rhonda Raymond are the two women I met with. Their company is called Eight and Sand. I'll explain a little more about that name later. And did they have like any background in the fashion industry before they even started this venture? No, they didn't. So they um, had no contacts. They had no experience or anything. They were really flying blind and they just had to like pound the pavement and make a lot of calls and, you know, um, kind of got connected to lots of different possible factories. Here's Nushi talking about just what they found when they started to look at factories. So, you know, I think we're pretty naive because the first few factories we looked at in L.A., well, I'll speak for myself. I don't think Rhonda was naive. I'll say I was. I was very wet behind the ears because I was shocked that we had sweat shops in the United States. So we absolutely do. I think for us it was really easy to quickly eliminate a lot of places. Um, There were a few factories that we liked um, in North Carolina. There was one in New Hampshire and there was one in Texas, but they couldn't handle everything that we needed to make this work under one roof. Mm -hmm. Um, So we didn't do it. And eventually we found this place. So this came at the end and it happens to be five blocks from our home. That's not why we picked it, but full circle back, it happened to be the best place for us. It covered all of our needs, you know, great relationship, worked out perfectly. It happened to be right here. So apart from just decent working conditions, like what about this place is such a closely held secret? So for them, um, this kind of gets into like the value of local manufacturing for clothing companies in particular, but I would imagine for a lot of product companies. And that's that they have um, access to this like very expert team there. So these are people who have been making clothes for 20 plus years. Um, a lot of the the people working there have been doing the exact same job for that entire time so they have like a guy there who's just the fabric cutter and like a lot of times this is done by a machine but they were like yeah this guy is actually more precise than a machine so um, I was like okay that's interesting he was like a very old gentleman so I don't know how much longer he'll be doing this job but um but they let me watch him work for a while and here's some tape from that was pretty awesome Oh, yeah, the matches. Yeah, I mean, and if these things are off even an eighth of an inch, it makes a tremendous difference in how something feels once it's on your body. And there's no, uh, you know, like we've all done home sewing. There's no pulling the thread and going back and doing it, you know. So it has to be really precise. He makes it look so easy, but it's not that easy. (laughs) And you can see there's no guide. It's not like a router or something that's affixed to a tabletop, you know, like in carpentry. If you don't have a good cutter in-house, then, you know, everything from there is problematic. So we looked at a lot of factories that um, didn't even have cutting in-house. They wanted us to do the cutting somewhere else. Mm -hmm then transport all of the pattern pieces that have been cut to the manufacturing floor. A lot of people do this. So it just, it did not make sense to us. We wanted everything under one roof. This episode is brought to you by Saks.com. 
At Saks.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. So I'd imagine the other thing about local manufacturing uh, that's a plus is you can physically go and check your stuff as it's being made Mm -hmm. um, rather than if it was being made in like Bangladesh. You'd have to book a flight to Bangladesh to make sure that that pattern is being sewn the way you wanted it to. Yeah, exactly. So that's something that has come up for them a lot, um, both in terms of Nushi and Rhonda wanting to go and make sure that something's being made right, but also on the factory side, the the um, foreman was telling me that what happens a lot is that you'll, you know, you'll get the patterns and the order and everything like that, and you'll start making something and you'll have a question, like it wasn't necessarily that spelled out on the pattern how this pocket should go on, for example, or like you know, what kind of liner they wanted on a shirt or, you know, how they wanted the cuffs sewn or something like that. And so, um, you know, they're like, you know, we can call them up and ask them, but sometimes like there's, there's some language barriers there. And then sometimes there's just like a little bit of confusion that comes up. So again, for, um, for them having the, the makers kind of like nearby means that they can just call them up. And like in this case, Nushi and Rhonda literally live around the corner from the factory. (laughs) So, they can just like walk over and be like oh yeah sorry I meant for it to be sewn like this Um, which just like is good for both sides so the other couple of factories that we did like we really wanted to kind of work with them and we're thinking maybe we could use this factory for this this other one for this but they weren't too pleased with the idea of us coming by and actually being on the factory floor so that that made the decision for us. We're like, okay, that's it. So that's not gonna work. When we're in manufacturing, either myself or Rhonda or both of us are here almost every single day because a lot of questions come up and there are a lot of solutions that we have to think about maybe on the fly and also see how things are going. You know, we get a lot of feedback about maybe the next time around if we're gonna reproduce the item, which we are planning on doing long-term. So there's a lot of great feedback that happens on the factory floor that I don't think we would get, you know. If you weren't here. No, I mean, if someone has to pick up the phone constantly or write an email, it just doesn't happen in that way in real time. Yeah, so the, the question that always comes up is, how are they doing? Like, is are they making money? Are they breaking even? Like, yeah. I mean, will they be honest with you? Yeah, yeah, I know. It always sounds good, like fair labor and sustainable sourcing and like local manufacturing. Um, but, you know, it's harder to make that really work than, um, than it sounds. Um, and they're saying that actually so far it's going pretty well. Like, they, they definitely struggled initially. So it wasn't just finding the factory. It was also, like finding the fabric and then figuring out um, 
how to design clothes and then figuring out retailers and all that stuff. But they said that um, that so far, like people are really responding to their brand, um, which I feel like is like very suitable for range. It's called Eight and Sand, and it's what a, is that? It's a it's a reference to train conductors in the old west that Ooh. when they would I know so apparently when they would meet they would shake hands and say eight and sand which meant um, eight for a wide open throttle and sand for a smooth ride on the on the rails I'm totally going to use that I know. I'm <laughs> just going to start dropping it in um, so they said you know people like their brand they've done a good job of like kind of packaging it and the other really big thing for them is fit um, so on top of you know finding the factory that can sew things the way they want they had to figure out like how patterns are made in the fashion industry and how sizing is done. And what they found was kind of atrocious. They basically were like, wow, okay, so the entire women's fashion industry is based on one particular body type that only like 10% of women actually have. Um, <laughs> Shocker. I know. <laughs> if any woman who's gone shopping will not be surprised by this at yes. all. <laughs> um, um, so here's, here's Nushi talking about that because she was, she was pretty hilarious about it. Like she, as like the more she was finding out about it, she was just like enraged. Our experience as consumers, female consumers yeah. was like, this feels really arbitrary. And, you know, if I go into, um, it's just all hypothetical. If I walk into a J crew and I pick up a size eight or 10, if they even have a size 10 on the rack, okay? Yeah. Um, and then I yeah. go to an Ann Taylor. Yeah. Those are not even comparable. Like, mm-hmm. I have a such a different experience in those stores. Yeah. Right? Um, so it's like, what, what am I not understanding? Why are these things so different? And the idea of having a number on a size label also produces this, I think, false sense of, you know, something being standardized or accurate or precise, you know, Mm -hmm. um, we wanted to solve sort of the fit issue. And we thought naively that we were just going to study a lot of existing size charts, study the history, and then it would become really clear, right, which size chart would be right for us and the market that we saw ourselves as eventually serving. Yeah. Well, that's not what happened. What happened was we ended up with about 20 times more questions than we started with. We were very confused. We, um, that was actually a really frustrating period Mm -hmm. in trying to start the business because we realized that the work we had ahead of us was so much more than we thought it was. Mm -hmm. Um, We met with lots of people, manufacturers in San Francisco, size graders in New York City, you know, people really at the top of their game in the industry, so to speak. Um, really just trying to understand how this all worked and what we were hearing just sounded really sounded wacky mm-hmm. um, I don't think people were uh, putting us off or giving us the runaround I think to them being in the industry it made a lot of sense you because it was just sort way. of how things yeah, had been done this is just how we do things. Yeah. but to us as lay people trying to learn something we didn't know about and we didn't understand just made no sense it would be like asking your math teacher you know in ninth grade a question and the answer you get basically makes you question mathematics altogether Mm -hmm. instead of answering I mean it would it was Mm -hmm. that sort of experience my head was spinning 
So we decided after getting a lot of information and kind of teasing it out that we really had to sit right here at this table, the two of us, pull another all-nighter and just really hash it out together and see if we could figure out if we could come up with some logic in this and where we were going to have to shore it up ourselves and where we could get existing sort of, you know, knowledge and tools to create the sort of sizing that we were going to use for Aiden Sand. So after, you know, a lot of work, I think we realized, yeah, we basically have to scrap the entire thing. None of it makes sense. You know, this whole like East Coast, West Coast, Middle America, you know, uh, uniforms versus leisure wear versus, uh, it was just like, what are you, this is not how women are living their lives or shopping. This makes no sense. Yeah. So a couple of examples would be like um, body types, right? Mm -hmm. And it sounds so silly to me to sort of try and compartmentalize women into body types, you know, because we all have different bodies. Sure. Like, I think on if you kind of try and really generalize a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Some of us are more like, uh, you know, narrow, slender, taller. Some of us are like, you know, larger in the hips, smaller on top, vice versa. So we realized that most of the brands out there right now are definitely designing to an hour, what's called an hourglass shaped body. Mm-hmm. So when I started digging, you know, and researching this, it was clear that, you know, roughly about 8% or less of the female population in the United States has an hourglass body. Um, so, you know, I, I was like, okay, um, I'm definitely missing something here because... Uh, I don't understand why, you know, 90% of the labels are designing for less than 8% of the population. So there's definitely this point at which when Rhonda and I also started feeling some irritation and anger when the light went on. I was like, wait a minute, you know, why is it that we're all trying to fit into these clothes instead of the clothes fitting the population? I think initially I definitely felt a little bit of rage over it. Seriously, how are we all propping this up? Together, we all have a hand in propping this up. Why are we doing this? Yeah, I hear that. And something that I had read earlier was that a lot of um, like designers or, or, or let's say fashion labels will leave sleeves off of dresses and, and women's shirts because mm-hmm. it's hard to find a sleeve that fits everyone's shoulder type. If you have like Hillary Swank, like, yeah. you know, million dollar baby shoulders or do you have like <laughs> Kira Knightley dainty shoulders? And so that's why the sleeveless uh, moment that we're in right now is not just about Michelle Obama's arms. It's about the fact that it's a lot cheaper and easier to just leave sleeves off of uh, mass produced uh, like clothing than it is to actually yeah. try and come up with something. And so that kind of gets back to like, you know, that it would be better if we did have um, more diversity in our, our fashion manufacturing so that you can encourage more body positivity, right? Yeah. So there was this big op-ed that Tim Gunn of Project Runway fame wrote recently. I think it was in the Washington Post about how fashion houses need to like get with the body positivity program um, and how they... Um, you know, really need to start actually accommodating women of of a variety of sizes and just like how behind the whole fashion industry is on that whole thing. Um, I think he he brought up a lot of stats in that just from a business perspective of like, you know, more than 50% of American women are not in the like 
four to six size range, you know, um, and that there are that it's not just about sizing up, that it's also about creating designs that work for different body shapes and things like that. Um, so one of the things that Nushi and Rana were talking about is just that they had to to basically start over on the sizing thing entirely. Like the whole system is so flawed. It's so based on this one body type and then just adding like an inch to the arms, waist and hips from there to get sizes up that they were just like, that's not how actual women's bodies work. So they brought in um, real people to size and they just measured them. And then they created their whole sizing chart based on that. So it's really based on actual women. And they had, then they had for their first line, they had those women come back and try on the clothes, made sure they fit. So they really took their time to develop their own real sizing chart. We uh, sketched out our designs, just some preliminary designs. We had some samples made. Um, we decided what those base sizes were going to be, which is all pretty standard so far mm-hmm. in terms of how things are done in the industry. And we started trying these things on and tweaking them so that they would fit us, right? Mm-hmm. So if, you know, Rhonda was a small, I was a medium, we're like, okay, what is like a perfect medium for me? What is was a perfect... as small as the... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So um, from that point, you know, we decided that we really needed to make a sample in every single size. And so in order to do that, you need a pattern for every single size. In order to do that, you have to do size grading. Most companies, um, you know, from what we've learned, basically make their base sample. They digitize that, you know, so they go from the handwork to a digital form of it. So the pattern gets digitized. And whatever that base size is then gets side grade, size graded. And that consists of like an algorithm and a computer. And you provide a grade rule. Mm-hmm. I've got quote fingers up. Mm-hmm. Um, meaning like let's say your, your measurement points are bust, waist, hip. Yeah. Literally that's usually all that's used. Arm length, that's that's arm used. length is another one. Yeah, an yeah. arm length. And you say, okay, my base size is small in this button-down shirt. And I want to go down to an extra small, and I want to go all the way up to a large, yeah. right? So I want you to do a whatever, two, you know. Two, three yeah, two, two, three. That means that if I go from a small to a medium, I want the computer to add two inches to the bust, yeah. you know, two inches to the waist and three inches to the hip as we go up. And I want the computer to deduct that same amount as I'm going down. Mm-hmm. So... This did not make sense to us either. So, you know, we, just as women living our daily lives, are now like just me, my body alone, just yeah. me, one individual who knows my body. I know when I'm exercising, I slim down. I know for me where that tends to happen. Yeah. You know, I might notice it in my face. My bust might get a little smaller. Yeah. You know, and I know in what order, yeah. right? Because we're all a little different. And when I put on weight, because I'm not being, you know, as disciplined about exercising or whatever, I know where it's going to come on first. I certainly know my arm length is not going to grow. I absolutely know that. I'm positive. So, you know, I might want a little more room in the bust. I might want a little more in the hip. But I don't want my arm length to get shorter or longer, you know. 
Um, I don't necessarily want the center front length of my shirt to get shorter or longer. But these are things that happen in the standard size grading that's done with an algorithm on the computer. We actually produced individual patterns and individual samples for every single size in every single style. That doesn't happen. Usually you go from the size grading from one base sample and size. Once that grading's done and you have your patterns and markers, you go straight to production. Things are manufactured at that point and then they go to the rack. Mm -hmm. So these extra steps, you know, we did, we had a lot of people telling us we were nuts. Really, we did we quite did fit literal. model sessions with yeah. every single piece. So we would do fit sessions for all of our clothes, the samples that we made. We would then make adjustments from there, and so we were in some ways doing custom grading, size grading. I mean, we did two rounds of fit sessions as well. So we did the initial grading. We did the fit sessions. We adjusted. We did another fit session. Adjusted produce samples every single one of those times and then we went to manufacturing mm -hmm. and that was after testing the fabric as well you know how is this going to perform where is it going to shrink um, so we really believe that if we put the time in to get the fit right then as we add new fabrics and and whatnot to the existing items that we have that um, you know it makes sense because we're going to be carrying these long term in mm -hmm. the 26 fashion cycles in a year type environment that is just not possible so that's when we say slow fashion, we really mean like we slow it way down. is a big differentiator for them. So it makes it extra important to have control over how that gets carried out down the line and make sure that this pattern that they've spent all this time making sure is the perfect fit and size actually gets made into a garment that fits as well as they want it to. And so far what they're hearing from people is that, yeah, they are like, this shirt is the most amazing fit I've ever had. Um, they're really focused on like basics for your wardrobe. So they're not like, gonna have the trendiest shirt every season <laughs> they're like they're like a solid like white like collared shirt that fits everyone you know yeah. I, I um, will say like it's almost like when you go to Patagonia right yeah it's like yeah. one flannel shirt totally <laughs> that, that you see everyone wearing <laughs> one perfect flannel shirt yeah. yeah so they're they're finding that that has been a big selling point for people it's what's allowing them to actually break into a you know a very crowded market and make their their business succeed of breaking into a crowded market there's a lot of podcasts out there y'all a lot yep. and they're really good <laughs> I've, been really listening. Good. I've been listening to a lot of new ones yeah me too there's some good ones um so we would really appreciate it if you're a range listener if you would go to the itunes store or wherever you get your podcasts and rate us subscribe to us share links with your friends um and yeah support us in that way if you can yeah thank you Range was produced by me, Julia Ritchie. And me, Amy Westervelt. All of our music is by the talented Mr. David Whited, and uh, illustrations for each episode are by James Guthman. 
We receive support from the Nevada Humanities Council, and our partner is High Country News, a magazine about Western issues. Check them out at hcn.org. You can subscribe to us on Google, Stitcher, or the iTunes Store, and you can find us online at rangepodcast.org. If you have an idea for a show or you want to tell us about your new business venture out west, send us a note at howdy at rangepodcast.org. To connect with us online, find us on Facebook or Twitter at Range Podcast. See you soon. Bye. All right. Nice. Let's get this over. All right. Let's do it. I want a drink. Yeah, I want a drink too. Sounds good. good. All right. It's it's five o'clock somewhere. That's right. (laughs) All right. So, okay. Welcome to Range. I'm Amy Westervelt. And I'm Julia Ritchie. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that's it. And scene. Um, okay.